The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. John chapter 1. We've been looking at John for some weeks now, and Christmas Eve came to verse 14. I'm going to begin reading there, but I'm not expounding that verse again. We looked at that on December 24th, and I'm going on to finish what we call the prologue, the first 18 verses. No doubt your Bible has these verses marked out and shows that a new section begins at verse 19. This is the only gospel with this kind of an introduction, and it's only one of the many ways in which John is unique as a gospel. We'll be noting more about that as we go along and study it this year. But I want to wrap up this prologue introduction with consideration of these verses 15 through 18. Listen to John 1, beginning at 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. This is God's own holy word. Back in the ancient days of the 1950s and 60s, for entertainment, you'd better have liked westerns. If you're old enough to remember, you can recall when TV programs on a given week would have several different Western shows, dramas of different kinds on every night of the week, from Bonanza to Gunsmoke to many others of lesser fame. And Westerns dominated the movies as well, cowboys on a cattle drive or a wagon train being attacked by wild Sioux Indians in which every single Indian wore the chief's war bonnet. Uh, entirely inaccurate, but nevertheless, this was the common entertainment in America. And many, when you had that many Westerns, there, of course, were a lot of them were just cheap, you know, kind of knockoff dramas without much of a plot or anything too much to them. But rarely there was that one that was well-written, well-acted, that truly could qualify as some kind of a classic, even perhaps approaching the level of literature. One of my favorites was a 1953 movie, some will know, by the one-word title, which was also the name of the main character, Shane. Shane is known by many critics as possibly one of the top Western films ever made. Alan Ladd was the star. 
the mysterious loner who rode into a Wyoming valley in early days when there was just a little village there, and cattle barons, large cattle ranchers, ruled the area with an iron fist, and they were quite unhappy with the fact that these homesteaders were coming in and building farms, of all things, on the cattle range, and they wanted these farmers to be driven out and were ready to do even violent things to make that happen. Well, Shane came in, a mystery man. Nobody knew where he came from. He didn't offer too much information, but he obviously was quite a different person than they had ever encountered before. They could quickly see that he had skills with a gun and skills in a fist fight, and yet he was a rather peaceful, easy man to know, and he didn't offer violence to anyone. He soon became the friend of one of the farmers and moved into his place and became a hired hand. That seemed like a surprise because he was no typical farmhand. Well, Shane quickly emerged to be the kind of savior, small s, for the farmers of that Wyoming valley as they fought these cattle barons, and they had even brought in a hired gun in the person of Jack Palance. First film for Jack Palance. First time he ever played that mean and ugly-looking villain that he played many, many times. All the cards were stacked against these farmers. Some of them were burned out. One or two were killed. Shane stood up to them on behalf of the farmers, and single-handedly in a climactic gun battle in the classic saloon, he shot it out and ended the tyranny of the ranchers. At the end of the film, it's a pretty famous ending. Shane is riding away. He's been wounded. You knew that because as he came out of the saloon, there was some blood dripping from his sleeve on the ground. And he's on his horse and rides off into the distance with a little boy had been his friend crying after him, Shane, come back, Shane! Great line, Brandon DeWilda, who died tragically himself as a young man. And there's an interesting last scene, if you know this movie. It's filmed from a distance. As Shane rides, just going over a hill, you see him slumped down in his saddle, falling against the neck of his horse. And that's the end. And you don't know. Did Shane give his life for these people? Was he dead? Movie critics have debated it ever since. And because of it, Shane is labeled what literary critics would call a Christ figure. You know this from literature, probably. You study in literature how there are figures in various great novels or plays where some person comes usually from a fairly obscure background, nobody really knows who they are, where they came from, and they enter the the play, the narrative, and they demonstrate fearlessness and courage and abilities that the average man doesn't have, and then they end up standing up for other people and maybe even sacrificing themselves for that other person or persons. And the literary, literary people call that a Christ figure. Well, unlike the movie I've just talked about, the Gospel of John portrays for us the singular, supreme Christ figure, the true Christ figure. And he's not shown to be that in some tantalizing way in the final scene of John, but right from the very start. The statement is up front. There's no doubt about it. 
John is writing about Christ, the eternal Word, the preexistent Son of the Father, present at creation, the light shining in the world's darkness, the cosmic Lord of all things who became flesh and dwelt among us. And now today we want to see how he wraps up this theme of the prologue or introduction of John. What a fine theme for the beginning of the new year. As I planned this series on John, I was planning so that verse 14 would come at Christmas Eve, but I don't think I had thought too much how this text would be very appropriate for the first sermon of a new year. What a fine theme to begin a year and think about the supreme Christ of God dominating the landscape of the Word of God and of the life of every Christian believer. I'm fascinated particularly as we come to verse 18, and I'll get there. I'm not getting too much ahead of myself, but there's, there's a fascinating phrase, and I became more intrigued with it the more I studied it this week and, and really tried to get into the Greek of it maybe more than I even usually spend on the language side and realize what an interesting, unusual Greek construction there is in the middle of verse 18, which the old King James renders as the only begotten Son. The NIV translation many of us used for years calls him the one and only. And our English Standard Version in some ways has the most startling translation of all, but yet it seems true to the Greek, calling Christ the only God at the Father's side. It startled me a little bit to see it rendered that way, but it's faithful to the early language of the Scripture. These titles are seeming to clearly designate someone who stands very high, very remarkable, entirely unusual beyond all comparison. And so does this prologue of John end by telling us that Christ is superior to John the Baptist and his ministry. He's superior to the Old Testament law. And in fact, he does something nobody ever did or even could pretend or or boast to do, and that is reveal God the Father as no person on earth has ever done before. And so while there may be interesting Christ figures, so-called, in human literature, they are all pale imitations of the Christ, the only Christ, whom John is putting before us this morning and who I commend for your attention. First of all, in verses 15 and 16, as John the author now is writing about John the Baptist, don't get mixed up. When verse 15 says, John bore witness, it's not the author, John, the disciple, it's John the Baptist, who already has been referred to back up in verse 6 and will be referred to again, hopefully, as we get to next week's text. And here we have from John the Baptist, verses 15 and 16, a statement of the uniqueness of Christ in his divine origin and divine fullness. The uniqueness of Christ in his divine origin and fullness. Now, as to origin, we've already heard this, so it's not new and I'm not going to stay on it very long. John wrote and said, This is he, speaking of Jesus, of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. Now, this isn't new. We met 
the preexistence of Christ in the first couple of verses. In the beginning was this Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, He was present even in the creation, we're told. So we have this truth of the preexistence of Christ, His divine origin. That's already been put before us. But we're just being reminded here in an age like 2014, an age when we still prize youth in our society and, and things that are new, and we think if it's new or if it's youthful, it's better. We forget that in biblical times, if it was older and established and had some precedence to it, it was better. And so John the Baptist, born before Jesus, about six months actually, as first cousin of Jesus, had already had his prophecy and his unusual rank as the forerunner of the Messiah begin to be established. People were beginning to flock to him and pay attention to him, and they thought he was something. He had quite a cult following, so much so that when it came time for him to point his followers toward Jesus and to transfer their allegiance, many of them had a tough time doing that. But yet he now already is saying, look, I know that this one Jesus comes after me chronologically, and you may think, well, who is he? Is he some upstart? He may come after me, but he stands above me because actually he came before me. He always existed, in other words. John the Baptist even confessed this. And then you go on from this uniqueness of his divine origin to added the, what is in verse 16, his divine fullness. As he goes on and says, not only did he exist before me, but now from his fullness we have received grace on grace. Many commentators suggest the parallelism between what is here in verse 16 and what is in Colossians 1.19 on the subject of this divine fullness, where God said, it pleased the Father that in Christ all the fullness of God should dwell. This fullness refers to the outpouring of the divine nature in Christ that the character of God filled the character of Jesus, that his nature wasn't making him partially God or sometimes God and sometimes not God, but indeed equal to and fully God in flesh. There was in Christ a kind of treasury of spiritual wealth so plentiful that no human soul could ever need anything that he could not supply it and supply it in extreme abundance. If you need mercy, grace, encouragement, healing, forgiveness, righteousness, companionship, care, guidance, he has it, and in all abundance. In 2 Peter 1.3, we have a promise to believers that Christ grants to his people, we quote from there, everything we need for life and godliness in our knowledge of Him. Everything. And this passage seems to suggest an image of Christ as a fountain flowing continually. Are you thirsty? We're not handing out water in Dixie cups when we talk about Jesus. We're talking about a fountain 
One of those great fountains in Rome somewhere, you know, where the the water spouts out of dolphins' mouths and everything, and very grandiose, that always flows. No matter how much you need to partake of Him, there's always going to be not just enough, but more and more. Blessing upon blessing, grace upon grace, verse 16 says. I would have you understand how different this is from the way the world offers things to anyone. The world offers us all kinds of sensory experiences and fulfillments, material possessions that it says will fulfill us, chemical experiences on which our bodies will have some kind of a high or other, attainments in education, in, in power, in office, sexual escapades, material wealth, whatever it may be that this world offers, they say, here it is. Now, this is going to really fulfill you. And what do we find time after time? You know, you reach some new level of, of your wealth or maybe your position. You, you get a big uh, advance in your job and you have a new title and, and a better salary and you think, oh, I've really made it. And in a while, you don't feel like it's all that different from where you were before. I'm not too much of a fan of Chinese food, but I'm told, some of you can verify, that when you eat Chinese food, it doesn't fill you up as much as, you know, turkey and stuffing and pumpkin pie and all of that that satiates you on Thanksgiving Day. People say you eat Chinese food and two hours later you're hungry again. Well, that's the way the world is when it says, here, I've got something to satisfy you. You say, okay, that takes care of my hunger. It tastes good but I'm hungry again. There's no lasting fulfillment. The Scripture is declaring that in Christ is a continual source of satisfaction. Later on in John, we're going to hear Jesus himself say, I am living bread. I am the water of life. What I give satisfies in a lasting way. You know, let me give you a fanciful image here. What, what if the Alaska oil pipeline came instead of, I don't even know where it terminates, but let's say it came all the way down through Canada and terminated in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And here's this huge pipeline all the way from the great oil fields of Alaska pumping oil in unimaginable supply right down to Lancaster. And they build an oil refinery because, of course, that's crude oil. It has to be turned into gasoline. I do understand that much. And then... Next to the refinery was one gas station. And someone sent me a letter and said, Michael Rogers, this gas station is for you. You have the privilege of coming here without paying any money, and any time you want, the the doors to this gas station, the gates will never be locked. You can always come and fill up your car. Would I feel pretty secure about my supply of gasoline for the rest of my life? The Alaska oil pipeline coming to one refinery, serving one gas station at which I had an unlimited pass to fill my car. Boy, I'd feel pretty good. I wouldn't worry about the price of gas from that day on. There'd be enough for me. This passage is saying, Jesus Christ is the pipeline of all the fulfillment of God's grace to men and women, over and over and over again. The supply will never fail. You'll never come to him and find that he doesn't have what you need. The uniqueness of Christ in his divine origin and divine fullness is here in these 
verses 15 and 16. But then 17 in the second place. Here I find the uniqueness of Christ compared to the Old Testament law. Now, we use the word law here in the broad sense. So you can say law and mean the five books of Moses that, Mo- that Moses actually wrote. But you can also use that word to apply to the whole Old Testament, and we think that's what is being said here. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. This is not demeaning or criticizing the Old Testament or saying the Old Testament was worthless. Jesus Christ is worthwhile. This is saying the Old Testament was a great gift from God. But it was not complete without Christ. He gave us a wonderful gift. He gave us insight and wisdom and poetry and prophecy and history and things that would help us interpret life and and have laws to follow and guidance and examples and songs to sing. But all of it, from Genesis to Malachi, anticipated that one which would complete it all, Jesus Christ. I hadn't thought of this for years and years, but as I was thinking about Christ as the completion of the Old Testament, I remembered a book sale I went to many years ago. And it was a publisher's house clearing out a lot of books, and, and they all, you know, it was advertised that they all were damaged. They were seconds, and there was something wrong. Pages crimped or cut wrong or, you know, a mark on the cover or something wrong with all these books, and yet you could still read them, and if you didn't care about perfection, it was fine. So I found a book there. It was a novel, actually, and uh, looked quite interesting to me. And I looked it over. I couldn't see very much wrong with it. And I bought it, and I took it home, I started reading. And I was getting very interested. It was a very good story. Well, maybe you know what I'm going to tell you, because I got about two-thirds to three-quarters of the way through this when I realized the table of contents didn't entirely match up to the number of chapters that were between the covers the last two chapters were not there. And I never found out what Paul Harvey called the rest of the story. To this day, I don't know how that book ended. That, you see, was almost the exact position that the, Old Test- or the New Testament scribes and Pharisees were in in the time of Jesus. They loved the Word of God. They knew the Word of God down to every dot and comma and little seraph on a Hebrew character, they could tell you everything about it as a system of laws to be obeyed and to produce righteous living and proper sacrifices to God and all of this. They prized it, they praised it, and they hated anybody who didn't love the Word of God the way they loved it. But the problem was they never got it that the law of God didn't have the last few chapters yet that it all pointed to Christ as Paul told the Galatians in Galatians 3.24 that the law was like a schoolmaster intended to teach us that Christ was coming. And if we didn't see that, we missed everything. The Old Testament law convicted people, made them guilty, made them ashamed. But it never saved them. The Old Testament law demanded righteousness from mankind. But people went out and determined to themselves, well, all right, God wants righteousness. I better behave righteously as well as I can. They didn't understand that God was pointing to a day when he would give the righteousness that he required. St. Augustine said, the law threatened 
where it could not help. It commanded, but it did not heal. And it only made us ready for the great physician who was yet to come. It lacked grace and truth that would make us complete in our salvation before God. So John 1.17, I think, is affirming here strongly that our need is to recognize the uniqueness of Christ even alongside, not replacing, but coming alongside the Old Testament law. Well, thirdly, we come to verse 18, and I was aware in a new way studying this text of what a wonderful verse this is. I think I could honestly say that it is the verse that really contains enough of the content of all 17 verses before it as to be the climactic statement, the final statement of this introduction, as it tells us the uniqueness of Christ as no less than revealer of God the Father. You notice it starts with a negative statement. No man has ever seen God at any time. Well, that's true. The philosophers would tell you that. Plato wrote one time, never will man and God meet. Another Greek thinker named Apuleius had an interesting insight I remember reading many years ago when Apuleius said, well, here's how I think we might experience the divine. It's like lightning flashing at midnight on a landscape, and you happen to be looking out, and, and a flash of lightning comes, and all of a sudden everything's illumined, and you, you see a vast landscape that you couldn't see at all, but then it's gone. Flash, gone. And Apuleius said, that's all we can expect with the divine. Get a flashing vision of it, but then it'll be removed. Well, something different than that was said by the Lord himself to Moses in Exodus 33 when Moses was sent on his task to go to Pharaoh and he said, how will I know? Lord, will you show yourself to me so that I know that you're sending me and I can tell them who's sending me and so on? And the Lord said, Moses, you can't see my face. I'll go with you. You can be sure of that, but you can't see my face. You remember the famous statement, you cannot see my face. For no man sees the face of God and lives. Well, something then very exciting was happening in the centuries-long development of the Bible when we can read in John 1.18 that now someone stands upon the earth, and here's the fact, no one has ever seen God, no living man or woman, but the only God who is at the Father's side is here to make him known, and his name is Jesus. He's Emmanuel, God with us. And when you see him displayed, you see the personality of the divine and only God. Fascinating statement. The, the translators, the English translators seem to struggle with how to translate that phrase. It's so unique in verse 18. This phrase, the only God at the Father's side, or the only begotten, or the one and only. I still like the NIV, one and only. Here's a sight Moses could not look upon. He wasn't privileged to see, but you are now privileged to see Christ in the world. The English bishop of a previous century, J.C. Ryle, commented on this passage. He said, in Christ's words and deeds, his life, his death, his miracles, his unspeakable acts of love, 
his uncomparable holiness, his hatred of sin. When we compass all of these things and bundle them together, Ryle said, God may not possibly be any more perfectly presented to our view than he was in Christ. And so we have a statement like 2 Corinthians 4, 6, one that we often quote at this time of year at Christmas time. We quote this text of Paul that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God was seen in the face of Christ, a man of this earth. Or we state that statement. If someone was to come to me and say, Pastor, you know, Jesus said a lot of bold things, a lot of incredible things, a lot of things that most men would never dare to say. What do you think was the boldest, most extreme, most radical declaration Jesus ever made? I I would have a quick response. In my judgment, that would be the statement of Jesus. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. That essentially is what got him killed. If you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Is he a lunatic or is he the Lord? You see, the choice is given to us. And folks, the choice isn't a worship of God by religion that strives to obey rules or bring proper sacrifices. What is it? It's the reception of grace upon grace. It's receiving what God has done, what He's pouring out to us through Christ, and that we would have a platform under our feet as we begin this new year, 2014, as many of us have begun other years, or you who are young are still, the whole idea of a new year is is new to you, children. But you can begin this year with this platform under your feet. No man has ever seen God, but the only God who is at his Father's side, has made him known. Praise God. What a great truth. Our particular denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, sponsors a college. Our missions budget helps to support Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia. We have a few alumni among our congregation. I know of one or two here today. I've only been there once. It's a beautiful place. It's a college I respect, mounted up there on Lookout Mountain, overlooking several states. Excellent faculty, excellent academics. But there's something about Covenant College that I've always identified with, even before I first visited it. I was aware of the motto or the theme statement of that college, and I've always thought it was great. It's five words. In all things Christ preeminent. I've always thought to myself, you can't get any better than that for a motto for a Christian college. In all things, Christ preeminent. I can't think of a better theme to summarize my own life as a Christian. Can you? Five words. In all things, Christ having the supremacy the preeminent place of recognition and adoration and followership from my life. I look at this year to come. I hope you will not hear this as a boastful statement because it's meant to be actually something very humble. But 
in seven months I will pass the landmark of my 40th year preaching the gospel on a week-to-week basis. There's never been a time in 40 years beginning this July that I have not been a pastor of a church where I was expected to preach the precious gospel of Jesus Christ every single Sunday. It awes me to think that I've done that that long and to think that perhaps God would grant me longer to do it. And I say to myself, however many more years God gives me to be able to preach His wonderful gospel and tell about Christ and hold Him up to people, I have to have this as my motto. In all that I do, in all that I say, in all that I am as a man, before I take this Word of God in in hand and before I pray and say, Holy Spirit, enlighten this Word as I develop it and try to speak it from the little bit of knowledge that I have, may it all display Christ preeminent. Could you start your new year with that theme? Instead of the rather silly and vain theme of write down some New Year's resolutions that you're going to say, boy, I've got to lose 10 pounds and I'm going to do it in three days. That's about what most people's New Year's resolutions are like. You make them, and in a week you know that they were made in vain. Will you start with resolutions of what you'll do in your own ability, or will you say, this God the Word who became flesh and dwelt among us, who gives grace upon grace, who's superior to the law of Moses, who is the one who's revealed the true God, I will strive to make Christ preeminent in 2014. I'll strive to do that in my marriage. I'll strive to do that in in my workplace, in doing the most excellent work I know how to do because I'm really working for Him. I'll strive to spend my leisure time in a way that Christ is preeminent. I'll strive to come to worship of Him week in, week out, even day in, day out as I pray and read Scripture. And I'll say daily, Oh Christ, may You be preeminent in me today. I'll strive to make decisions with that in mind. I'll strive to pray with Christ preeminent. Grace piled upon grace as He gives to me, I'll turn to Him and I'll be dependent on Him every day and every hour. And I'll remember what Martin Luther said. Speaking of Jesus, he said, This spring is inexhaustible. He, Christ, is full of very grace and truth. Luther said, He never loses anything, no matter how much we draw from Him, the more abundantly He gives. There's no man or woman who's ever erred on the side of giving too much honor, too much attention, or placing too much hope in Jesus Christ and Him preeminent. And I challenge you to begin your year with this focus, that in all you do, in all you are, in all things, Christ may be preeminent. Let's pray together. Father, just considering the greatness of our Savior ought to be enough for us. We shouldn't be running against, after all, the trinkets that the world has and the things it promises us and then snatches away. 
Lord God, consecrate your people anew to yourself, not in a moment of emotional resolve, but in that true humility of bowing before the one who is so great as to exceed all descriptions and all expectations. Thank you for our great Savior. May we so live as his humbled, redeemed, transformed, consecrated people so that this world would see him and therefore also see you. Amen.